Merry Christmas. Oh, man, that was, <laughs> that was the poorest greeting I have had to date. Really, you can help me out better than that. Merry Christmas. Yeah, all right. My faith is restored at Evergreen, 1115 service, yeah. Well, good morning. My name's Jared, and uh, I'm faster here. I get to be the guy that's speaking today, and uh, I think that you made a great decision to be at Evergreen this morning. Uh, I know what happened in the first couple of services, and uh, I think I think today you're going to think. I think you're going to be moved. If all we did was just worship together as we did, that would be awesome. But we get to go to God's Word today and discover what is ultimately true about us and Him, and we're going to learn some new stuff. Are you ready to go with me today? All right, here we go. Yeah. Well, you know, just a, a few days ago, we heard the news that Nelson Mandela had died at age 95. He uh, was born in South Africa. He was educated, went to high school, went on to college, got a bachelor's degree, went to law school, had a degree in law, was certified, and was a practicing attorney in South Africa. As a young man, he became committed to doing whatever he could to help the cause of bringing true and general democracy to his nation. For his activities, he was charged and found guilty and could have been sentenced to death. At his sentencing hearing, his speech in his own defense included these words, and I quote, I have fought against white domination. I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal for which I hope to live and to achieve. But if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. End quote. Well, he was spared the death penalty. He was sentenced to life in prison for 27 years from his solitary cell. He could look across the water to the beautiful city of Cape Town. I can only imagine the loneliness, the isolation, the anger, injustice that he may have felt as for 27 years he saw his own freedom taken from him. Finally, he was released and walked down the halls past his cell and outside of that prison, a free man. He reengaged in the political arena and supported the reconciliation movement. In 1994, Mandela was the first generally democratically elected president of South Africa. In his position of power, he could have recriminated against those who had designed and supported the apartheid system, but instead he led the way, believing that forgiveness and reconciliation would bring the most healing to his broken nation. Yeah. When I, the last few days, as you have, have heard of his story, I certainly thought of God, the greatest reconciler, and Jesus Christ coming, and we as Christ followers celebrating God's reconciling us to him and daily reconciling us to one another in relationships. And Christ not only coming as the second person of the Trinity, God's son, with a willingness to give his life for reconciliation, but to actually give his life in death for us. 
In this third in the four-part series of Epic, we have talked about Epic Intervention, a birth, and Epic Love, a life, and today, Epic Forgiveness, the Cross. I'm going to invite you to take a look with me at nine verses in the Bible today. We always go to the Bible. It is the place we go for truth. We have looked within ourselves. We've come up short. We've looked in others, and we've been disappointed. We look to God's revelation of himself, the Bible, and we're going to read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. We're going to kind of take it apart verse by verse and go ahead and open your Bible, the books or devices, or look on the screen with me as we ask and answer four great questions. Where and who and what and why? Epic forgiveness that sets us free. A couple of months ago, Ann and I went to uh, Dr. Chad uh, uh, Lawson, and we had our eyes checked. It was the every other year deal, and some of you are as old as I am, and you've discovered that everything in your body goes south, including your eyeballs. They get weak and start to droop, and so every couple of years, there's the, there's the retest, and sure enough, there's the new prescription for old Jared. You know, that's just the way it works. And you know how it works, whether there's a machine or a paddle that you hold up. And first of all, you test the left eye, right? And you hold the paddle up so only your left eye is isolated. And because the doctor wants to know how horribly bad my eyesight is and my left eye, he wants to give me all kinds of bad news. It's fuzzy. It's blurry. I don't have any depth perception. I may not have a ton of, you know, it's just a mess over here and he just bothers my left eye so that he can create a prescription to give me 20-20 vision. And then the left eye is covered up and we go over to the right eye and he doesn't say, he wants me to understand how foggy and blurry my right eye vision is so it can have its precise prescription so that when the two come together, I have not only 20-20 vision, but I have the depth perception that comes from both of those being together. This is what happens when we go to God's word. We first of all find out how blurry our thinking is about ourselves. We find out how blurry our thinking is about God and the revelation of scripture gives us 2020 insight. That's what we're going to read in these nine verses today. And we're gonna start out with the left eye, how we view ourselves and see how foggy that is. And then we're gonna turn and we're gonna take a look at our right eye and discover how grand God is. Let's jump in as we answer the question of where we started. Let's take a look at verse 1. It reads, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Aren't you glad you came to Christmas series? Aren't you glad? Didn't you just wake up this morning saying, I'm hoping that Jared talks about being dead on arrival. DOA, that's just the promise that just warms my heart this Christmas season. I know, I know. You've discovered I'm kind of a strange and demented character. But I've discovered that good news is only good news if it's answering what? Bad news, right? So let's imagine that I give you a hundred bucks. I just come out of the blue dam and I say, I want to give you a hundred dollars. Now, is that going to be good news or what? Good news. It's going to be good news. Now, all of you know Dan. All of you know that he has like $100 million in the bank. You know Dan, don't you? You're going to be very popular today out in the lobby, Dan. You are going to be the man. So Dan has $100 million in the bank and I give him $100. Is that good news? Yeah, it's good news. Yeah, it's not that great, but it's good. 
let's imagine that uh, you're going to give me a hundred bucks and I know that the folks from the utilities are coming out to shut off our electricity because we have not been able to pay our bill and our bill is $99. And when they're two miles from our house, you come over and say, hey, I'd like to give you a hundred bucks. Would that be good news? Yeah, really good news. What changed, the hundred dollars? No. What changed is the bad news that it was in light of. And we can only appreciate the good news. It's the word that we get out of the Bible. We call it the gospel. The gospel is only really good news if we face up to some really bad news. That's why Paul just comes out of the chute and says, you want to know who you were? You were DOA. This was bad news. You, you, were, you were spiritually dead. We object to that. I, as a human being, object. I say, first of all, I'm quite alive. Thank you very much. I kick myself right there. I feel that. I'm animated. I'm physically alive. Mentally and emotionally and psychologically, at least some, I think I'm psychologically alive. Some of you are questioning that. I know I am socially alive. I have relationships. Now, he says, you misunderstand. Spiritually you arrived, DOA, where that little baby was delivered and came out and the people that were in the, in the delivery room were waiting to hear that first little squeaky cry. And that's when we go, oh, she's here and she's alive and she's beautiful. Actually, she's a goop. She's beautiful, we say, and she's alive because we heard her cry and we celebrate physical life, right? And Paul says, I want you to know the deepest, most fundamental truth about your life You were born DOA. Some of you have suffered the tragedy as we have of miscarriage. Some of you have suffered the unspeakable pain of stillbirth. Some of you have lost your infants or your children. Unspeakable pain. Paul says to us, I want you to grasp, I want you to grasp, I want you to grasp the grief of that and grieve about yourself. You were born DOA absolutely distant from God. And that violates our human sense of pride because it's a one thing if you tell me that I'm going to need some help. I'm like 80%, but I need God to help me with 20. I have a limp, but I kind of need God to give me a brace, you know, that kind of thing. Because still, it's mostly me to help myself forward. Paul just comes right out of the chute. You'll never appreciate the good news until you know the bad news. It's the truth. You were born dead in transgressions and sins. Far from God, born in his image, but that was so broken by distance from him that you absolutely needed some help. Well, it doesn't get better, but he's still giving us another measurement over here on the left eye. And notice, secondly, what he has to say about what God, uh, uh, who we were in that. It says, verse 2, in which you used to live. Pause for a moment. What is the in which? It's death. Now, this is a curious phrase. Death in which you used to live. Is that kind of a juxtaposition, oxymoron or what? You were very much alive physically, mentally, psychologically, emotionally, socially, but you were spiritually dead. So he said the life that you've experienced that you reflect back on since your earliest memories was actually in the context of spiritual death. So here, in which he says you used to live when you followed, we were followers, the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And now Paul, who's been talking to you all, all those people at Ephesus in the church, now includes himself. And he says, all of us, me included, every human being, 
also lived among them at one time. And, and we all gratified the cravings of our flesh. We all followed its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This is what Paul says. I'm going to give you two pieces of bad news so you can see yourselves very, very clearly. The first of all, you were spiritually dead on arrival. Number two, in your animated human life, you ended up being susceptible to these philosophies that just led you astray. What are world philosophies? We're all prone to them. I, I see myself in all of them. You think about hedonism. Hedonism says, uh, I like to feel pleasure instead of pain. Any of you with me on that one? It's okay to fest to that. When I hurt, the first thing I'm thinking about and the first actions I'm doing are finding ways to alleviate that pain. I would prefer to have pleasure than pain. Hedonism ultimately says that life's purpose and meaning is my having pleasure. I get that. A second one would be narcissism. Narcissism says I am the center of the universe. Other people are here primarily to support me and my interests. So we boomers, we, we had the catchphrase for hedonism. If it feels good, do it. And we narcissists, our catchphrase is it's all about me. And then there's a third group, the materialists. And what we say is, even after we have worked hard to meet all of our basic life needs, we want to continue to strive to acquire and accumulate more stuff, believing that I'm going to feel happier and more fulfilled as I get more stuff. Hedonism, narcissism, materialism. I see myself in all of those pictures. I get that. And Paul says, Spiritually, we were dead, but we very much found ourselves being duped into these ways of thinking as though they might bring satisfaction in life. And then he says, it's even, it's even harsher than that, that behind those philosophies, those aren't just social systems, behind that there's actually a devil, the Satan, the deceiver himself, the first one to remove himself far from God in the rebellion in heaven, coming to earth, shrouding it in his malevolent darkness and living life today with the mission of hauling as many humans as he can to hell, distant from God. That's what Paul says. Now you're really glad you're here, aren't you? Whew, this is Merry Christmas to me. Merry, Merry Christmas. I, the, you know what happened? I made a mistake. I looked at the calendar and I missed up Christmas for Easter and I thought that this was just before it was Good Friday. So there we go. That's, there's an excuse for that. No. Christmas is best appreciated in light of where we were. Now there's this beautiful transition. I've been picking on you over here, right? The people who don't see ourselves well. And now I get to come over here. Aren't you glad that you're, I'm all yours now? Yeah. Now we're going to take a look at this other eye to see what God did for us. Wow, it's amazing. And the verses we start to read, it starts with a beautiful three-letter word, but... B-U-T. It's transitional. It's like a huge hinge on a door that just swings wide open now. And we look inside at who God is and what he's done. This is what we learn about what God did. Verse four, because, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Amazing. Hmm. But because of his great love, love. That word is so diluted for us in the English language and in our common use, it's almost become unhelpful for us. Let's imagine that, um, let's imagine that you were going to make... Um, 
fresh-squeezed orange juice. Jason, that sounds like something that you would do. So Jason gets all, do you ever do this? I never do this. Today, let's do this. You have, you have, the, you have the whole deal. You want to come up here and tell how you would do that. That would be a... So Jason is going to make Debbie some fresh squeezed orange juice and he gets all the stuff and he presses it. And now there is this beautiful eight ounce cup. Oh, it is luscious. It is chilled. It is pulpy. You can taste it. It's both sweet and tart and it's thick and you can feel the texture and it is nutritious. Are you tasting it with me? Is your mouth squirting with me? Here we go, right? But just before he gives it to Debbie, he takes it back. He says, oh, just a minute, just a minute. And he dumps it in 100 gallons of water and stirs it all up. And out of the bottom, he gets eight ounces for Debbie. And he says, here's you go. It's fresh squeezed orange juice. Guess what? It ain't going to look like fresh squeezed. It's not going to taste like it. It's not going to feel like it. It's not going to nourish like it because it is so diluted. That's what happens to this word love. We read about God's love for us and we just end up with this wimpy deal because that's how we use it. It's either romantic or it's erotic or it's... Uh, it's uh, in terms of preference. So we use these representative phrases. Fall in love, make love, love Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Just diluted. So Paul says, God has love for you. And I find it creepy, right? I just don't want to apply any of those uses to it. So he, he needs to reconstitute for us this idea of love. This agape love, which always has another person's best in mind because God had your best in mind. And Paul is not satisfied with just telling us that God loved us. He wants to multiply it with an adjective, great love, epic love. But because of God's great love, this God who's rich in mercy He says, lavished his grace on us and we're saved by grace. Grace giving someone what they did not deserve. Grace and gift in the original Greek language have the same root. He's given us grace. And it says that in this grace, because of forgiveness, that God has seated us with Christ Jesus in the heavenly realms. Does that sound like science fiction or what? I mean, really, I kind of get lost at that point. Some of you are looking way more spiritual and pious than I am. Let me go ahead and confess my sin, okay? I think about heaven, but I don't think about it very well. Heavenly realms, you know, what's that, right? Who knows? In fact, uh, some fun conversations with with Pastor Brad, who's from Australia, because I told him when I was a kid growing up that when people asked me where heaven was, go ahead and point with me. Where would you point? Right, point it up. I asked for Pastor Brad in Southern Hemisphere where he pointed. He pointed up too. And I said, so were you guys going the wrong direction or were we, right? There's kind of some physical limitations to this idea of heaven being upward or maybe way at the edge of the universe or universes out there, there's heaven, right? We think about God a long way away. So sometimes we pray and we don't think like our prayers get more than 50 million light years away. They don't quite get to God, The heavenly realms aren't a matter of light years or miles or feet. It's a matter of dimension. It's a realm. That's why Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is near you. It's like right here. Our five physical senses don't pick up on it, but the heavenly realms are 
all around us. God is not far from you. You don't have to shout his name to get his attention. He is here. Emmanuel, God is with us. So here's where you're seated. (laughs) You're seated in Christ Jesus in the heavenly realms. This is the deal. God looks at Paula, the father looks at Paula and says, I just keep seeing Jesus when I look at Paula. Is that amazing or what? Yeah. God looks at you and he sees Jesus. And he looks at Jesus and he sees you in Jesus. And so God the Father treats you as he would treat his one and only son. Now I'm beginning to get some sense of appreciation for great love and grace. That's what God did for us. But Paul wants to wrap it up for us. We're going to read the last verses, starting with verse 7, because he wants to tell us why God did it. Here it is. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. Even that faith is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. That's what he says. Why did God do it? Well, those of us that are uh, hedonists would say, God saved me by grace so that I would feel pleasure and be happy, right? Those of us who are narcissists would say, God did it because I'm so important and he just couldn't possibly bear the thought of not living with me for everlasting life. Yeah. Those of us that are materialists cannot figure out why God bothered and all of us are wrong. Rick Warren, in his book, many of you have read, you certainly are familiar with the title, international bestseller published several years ago called The Purpose Driven Church. You remember the first sentence? It's the first paragraph. This is the warm and cozy way to start a book. I quote, it is not about you, end quote. That's what Paul is saying here. God loves you, but ultimately it's not just about you and me. This is what we read. God's intention was to make you a grace masterpiece to show off forever. Hmm. In the coming ages, what are those? Well, we're on the sci-fi kind of theme. This is just kind of fun for me. So let's do one more. What do you imagine about the coming ages? We don't have a lot of revelation in the Bible about that, but God's eternal. And so he's doing a big thing right now that at least includes planet earth. We kind of think it's the only thing he's doing, but he's going to wrap this thing up someday. He's eternal. He's going to do some new things, right? And he's creator, So he can't help himself by not creating. There's lots of stuff that's coming off into the future. So let's imagine that we're out there in the coming ages and God has these beings and these beings like us as human beings are trying to get to know God better. And they say, I'd like to understand more about your power. And God says, let me tell you about my power. And they end up with a description of how he created the universe. And they're going, wow, you are powerful and you are creative. I get that. Tell me about your love. And he begins to describe his love and his point of view towards service to others. And they say, man, that is powerful. I honor you and worship you for your love. I understand your love. And then they say, I want to understand your grace. And God says, oh, we have a problem here. I cannot explain my grace to you. 
In fact, it's incomparable. I can't compare it to anything else to help you understand it. I can only show you my grace. And all of a sudden, he points to you. And you, and you. And they say, you've got to be kidding me. (laughs) And then he points to me. And they go, I can't believe that. That's why God saved you. Because you are the most dramatic expression of grace that will ever happen in God's eternal existence and experience. Grace. Now, Paul has to finish up by saying something to people who tend to be religious because you know what religious people do, don't you? They build little religious castles and then they put little ladders up them and then they climb their own ladders and then once they're two rungs up on the ladder, then they get long judgmental noses and they have long pointy fingers and they point to people that aren't up on their little religious ladder and then they judge those people, right? And they're holier than thou and they've generally earned that, right? You understand what religious people are like? Paul just had to take care of that. This is a confession. You don't do this, but I love watching Gold Rush. Any of you with me on that? Yeah, not a person here. Two, three people here. Thank God. We're gonna have a We're going to have an invitation for salvation at the end of this message pretty soon. And some of you need to buy into that thing, I can tell you, because you just lied. You just really did. So Gold Rush. And, uh, you know, Todd and the buddies over from Sandy, they went to Alaska. Now they're down in in, uh, Central America, or at least that's where the show is currently, because they're actually back in Sandy right now. But in any event, I love it because there is a D11 cat. Any of you like D11 Caterpillar tractors with me? I grew up on the little farm. We had a little wimpy D2. And once in a while, there was a D4, but D11 cats are these monster machines. And when they drop the blade, that dozer pushes anything it wants out of the way. And if you want flat ground, regardless of what that ground started to be like, you're going to get flat ground. You know what I mean? I love D8 cats. This is what Paul's saying to us. I want you to know that what God did for you in Christ on the cross was an absolutely leveled ground. And there's no room for anybody to get uppity or snooty or holier than thou or more religious or better or judgmental on that level ground. We all started from the same place, utterly needing God's forgiveness. We all began at the same place, absolutely desperate without his love and his grace. And we're all still standing in Christ because of his forgiveness. There's no religious ladder to work your way up higher than other people and to point judgment back their way, he says. We're all in this together and there's no room to boast. Wow, I love that. So he's given us a prescription, hasn't he? He's clarified our thinking about how we think about ourselves and calling us to come to the humble reality that we are desperate without God's intervention. It's what Christmas is all about. And that God in his tremendous love and grace for us extends forgiveness that sets us free. Yeah. But you know where we're going to end today is the fifth and final question, which is, so how did he do that? How did he get this forgiveness to us? Because you see, from our point of view, God had a problem. The problem was 
that he loved you so much and that he is so filled with grace that he just wanted to make sure that you could be saved, that you could be forgiven, that you could be brought alive forever. But he has this other thing over here called justice, that he had to, he had to be himself with justice. He has to have integrity. So how do you line up love and grace and justice when in the celestial economy, the wages of sin equals death? Sin occurred. Death has to be paid for justly. God couldn't just wake up on the right side of bed, have a good morning, enjoy his coffee, and wink and nod and say, I'll just cast a blind eye across sin. He would have lost his integrity and justice. God only had one option to fix this thing for us. The option was for him to send his only son, who was perfect, to come to a planet that was populated by polluted humans. There were no perfect humans to pay the price and penalty for others. And so he had to become one of them. Ah. That's why when Jesus was speaking to a, a crowd of thousands and they were hungry and he took a lunch and he multiplied it. You remember that story? It's fairly cool. And of course, they were all excited. I mean, they not only got a free lunch, but they'd like never seen a trick like that before. They were just astounded. It was wonderful. And then Jesus says to them something that sounded so, so difficult and was. Jesus says to all of them, hey, if you don't eat my body, you can't be part of me. If you don't drink my blood, you can't be part of me. And they were just freaked out. Wouldn't you be? And they all left. I would have too. He was stuck with just a handful of disciples and they'd already, you know, kind of mess up their lives following him and said, where else would we go? So, I mean, he didn't have a lot of followers at that point. It sounded like cannibalism, which by the way, the Christian church historically over the years and parts of its persecution was persecuted for purportedly practicing cannibalism because of this visceral connection with the body of Jesus Christ. Of course, made a little more sense a few months later when he was there in what we call the Last Supper, and he's with his disciples, and they're talking, and he takes the bread, and, which was an unleavened kind of cracker thing, and he broke it off, and he took the chalice, the cup that was being passed around of wine, and he said, he said, I want you to take this bread, and I want you to receive it as my broken body. And they're going, Jesus, I'm looking at you. You're not broken but they would understand that in a few hours. I want you to take the wine and I want you to drink it. This is my blood. And they're going, this, we don't get this. You're not bleeding. They would understand that in a few hours. And Jesus then said, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, do it to remember me. Visceral stuff. Why physically connecting us in a way that we see it and we can hear it as it breaks and we can taste it and we can feel it in our mouths and we swallow it and ingest it and we see and smell and taste and feel this juice. Why physically participate in something to remember him? Because Christmas had to happen. He had to come physically and become human-like kind for us 
to be the perfect sacrifice. Because God in his great love and rich mercy saved you. I'm going to invite you to reach into the little uh, stockings that are on the back of the chairs right in front of you there. And along with a candy that some of you have found and have already thoroughly enjoyed and probably bummed one off of the people sitting on either side of you. By the way, these are all for you to take, not the stockings, but the stuff inside. I do uh, invite you to take out a nail that's there that's been dipped in red paint. Hmm. It was about a year and a half ago that I stood with my family around my mom's casket outside the country church. We were, we were going to have a little family private uh, graveside service and then go inside. And I had the pl- privilege of conducting the memorial service for my mom when uh, lots of other friends were able to come. So it was just a little family deal at the graveside. And uh, I invited any of the, my family to say some words about my mom that they would like to say. So one of her granddaughters stepped up, and her four kids were there. So granddaughter is remembering her grandma, great-grandma. This is what she said. She said, I was, I was with grandma one day, and I was wrestling with how to tell my kids about death. All of us that are or have been parents, we wonder the same thing. You know, what's appropriate? What's age appropriate? When when do we expose our kids to death? They happened to be living on a farm. They had pets, some of which would die. They had had livestock, some of which would be slaughtered. What should I do, Grandma, in introducing my kids to death, she said. And then she quoted my mom, who said, Never protect your children from death, or they will never understand the cross. That's what she said. If you don't know the bad news, you won't appreciate the good news. And if you don't know the price, you'll end up with cheap grace. So the Roman execution squads were 12 huge gladiator-esque soldiers They were under the supervision of a fifth man. He would be a centurion. He didn't have physical work to do, but he was there to make sure that none of the soldiers got too squeamish and queezed out and were too lenient. On that morning, they probably ate a hearty breakfast. They had a big job to do. In fact, they were joined with three, uh, two other execution squads as well because they had a busy day ahead in Jerusalem. Yeah. They would do the flogging within the city walls of Jerusalem, but the hardest work of all would happen later out on the little rise of the hill just outside of the city walls. The hill was called Calvary or Golgotha, depending upon which of the two primary languages you spoke that were spoken in the streets of Jerusalem. Both meant the same thing, the place of the skull. And why that was a fitting name, while that was a fitting name for the Roman execution grounds at Jerusalem, it actually drew its name because from a distance, if you looked at that hill, the rock outcroppings could cause it to look like a human skull. The scourging that happened was around posts that were permanently affixed in the courtyard just between the temple built by Herod and the fortress where 
soldiers were kept to maintain the peace of Jerusalem. Pilate had come over from Caesarea because of Passover. He hated Jerusalem, but he had to stay for a couple of more days. He would be living up in that fortress. Those scourging poles were short. They were wooden. They were permanently fixed in the ground. On top, there was a metal ring. And the one being sentenced to the scourging would be led forward uh, with arms, uh, hands bound together and would be stripped naked, forced to his or her knees and then manacled to the metal ring on top of the post. Then the wrists would be manacled around the post, causing the body to be locked in position, making it almost impossible to squirm or otherwise try to avoid the lashes that would certainly be coming. The executioners were artists. Their job was to inflict as much physical damage and pain without killing the person. If they didn't inflict enough damage, they would be punished. If they killed the person before he was supposed to be, they would be punished They were artists. Their art was not so much the force with which they drove forward the whip with its three, three inch long tentacles, but it was the force and speed with which they yanked those tentacles back. For each of them had affixed on the end, probably on this day, pieces of metal that looked like a little barbell. They could have affixed pieces of bone, but those were so sharp that it tended to kill the person being scourged. No, this Jesus had not yet been sentenced to death. He had been sentenced to scourging. They must keep him alive. Those pieces of metal would inflict the most damage in terms of bruising and tearing away the flesh. And if the executioner were particularly skilled that day, he would expose the bones of the back and potentially internal organs. Hmm. But Jesus was not yet to, to die. He felt the lash. There was no gap between the blows. The Jewish law said that one could not be punished by more than 40 less one blow, but Pilate was not subject to any goofy religious Jewish law. His sentence was that Jesus be whipped to within an inch of his death. The blows came one after the other, two men standing behind, each with their own whips. And if they finally physically tired and unable to continue at that pace and rate, there were two to fall in behind as the substitute team to continue the scourging until the centurion decided that death was near and demanded that it stop. Jesus, while he had briefly had gone to Pilate's or to Herod's palace that night for one of his two faux and illegal trials, the soldiers there found some filthy purple discarded royal robe and had thrown it over Jesus' shoulders. Now the executioners stuck along with the rest of the company of Pilate's soldiers there that night, bored, nothing else to do, decided to make sport of Jesus, threw that filthy cloak over him, knowing that the, that the wounds would begin to coagulate against it as well. And then they took, they took a, a reed, made it and fashioned it like a scepter that a king would have. And now they're about to finish all hail the king as the one robed in royalty as holding a stick for a scepter. 
but not quite done in their mocking, along with the blows and the spitting and the mocking. They noticed that there was a tall, whitish bush from which inch-long spikes grew closely together. And they clipped a few of those branches and fashioned together a crown and placed it on and forced it on Jesus' head as it went into the skull and broke all of those vessels and capillaries, blood streaming down his face, the nerve bundle around the head, and then the spikes went crashing into his skull, radiating, shooting pain throughout his face. In mocking this king, grabbing the scepter from his hand and using it now to beat on the crown of thorns, unspeakable horror. Now the death sentence does come from Pilate. Now he's not just going to be scourged and sent away, but now he's going to be taken out to Golgotha. And so they rip off the filthy robe, exposing his back once again, and force against him a 70-pound, almost six-foot-long, sharply honed beam. Sharp splinters exposed, finding their way into that flesh as the beam is now placed across his back. And Jesus and his four executioners begin the long, slow walk uphill out of town to Golgotha, a half a mile away. You know the story. Unable to finish the journey, a man named Simon is pressed into service. They get to the top of the hill Those that were condemned to be crucified were generally crucified naked, men facing outward, women facing inward. Jesus is thrown down against this. The soldiers on one hand stretch an arm this way and another this way. The nail is taken. It is probably placed harshly into this area of his wrist. In original language, from the fingertip up to this part of the arm was considered the palm of one's hand. Had had the nails gone here, the structure of the bones may not have supported the weight of a human. But here, where the two large bones from the arm come down into these, these finer bones, there would be the structure to support the weight. The spike is six inches long. It's square. It comes down to a spike. And while Jesus is stretched, the mallet comes down and both arms are spiked into place. He's then yanked to his feet. One soldier takes one side, another takes the other, a third one behind, positioning Jesus back to the eight-foot post, which remained permanently there on Golgotha. And finally, a fourth one climbing a small ladder to help host this whole person and the crossbeam up to the top where there was put in place uh, a joint where the crossbeam could fall held in place now by the condemned one who is there. But there's one last excruciating piece of Jesus' punishment. Now as his legs are slightly bent and one foot put across the other, the spike is driven through those fine metatarsal bones and finally finding their place in the plank. Their work is done, but they're not finished. They have to stay there until he dies. Death by suffocation might take several days. Its crucifixion finally diminishes the person's energy and dehydration. 
so that he or she cannot find the ability to raise the torso enough to let air in, and then in a second effort to let air out. But on this day, their work is going to be done, and if necessary, they will break his legs to do it because it's going to be Passover in a few hours, and the rule is that condemned bodies can't be hanging outside of Jerusalem in view of people celebrating Passover in the temple. If he doesn't die, they will hasten his death, and so they, and so they wait. Hmm. Mary was there along with some other women. The apostle John was there, weeping, grieving, standing on blood-spattered stones. Mary must have remembered the old man Simeon when she had dedicated Jesus 33 years before. And Simeon said to her, your own soul will be pierced as he spoke of her son's future. And that day, as his side was stabbed, her soul was pierced. Just days before, hours before, Jesus had said to his followers, there is no greater love than this, than one lays down his life for his friends. And he was about to do that. We read the Apostle Paul say these words earlier. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you are saved. Jesus gazes out on Jerusalem one last time. And now this one who has said, greater love has no one than this, he said his final words, it is finished. Because of his great love and grace, we are forgiven and set free. That's what Christmas is all about. No wonder there's no room for religious effort. No wonder there's no room for pride of being better. No wonder there's no room for one judging another. We're all in the same condition, and we all need a Savior.